Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Nedarim, daf Zayin, page 7. So, a couple of interesting things on this daf from uh, Ahmed Aleph that I'm going to start with before I hand it off to Yerdena for more of Ahmed Bet. Um, there's a discussion here about, uh, let's say, the designation of things and the question of when does the speech, you know, using speech to say something about something, when does that officially, halachically designated as that thing, and when does it not? And we've seen this discussion play out in things of being consecrated, and so the top of the top begins with this question about it for tzedakah, and now the part that huh, I'm going to do from the sublime to the profane, I suppose, or mundane, um, there's a discussion here about whether when somebody says something specific or not specific, as the case may be, about a bathroom being a bathroom, does that have the halachic status of becoming a bathroom? By Ravina, Yad le Beit HaKisei, although Beit HaKisei is the, the Gemara term for bathroom, nowadays we would say Sherutim, um, like facilities, I guess that is better translated as, right? So Ravina wants to know, is is there, can you, is there such a thing as an official designation that that place is a bathroom, making it then the halachic bathroom. Hey, Chidami. The Gemara says, what would the case be? How does that work? So let's say we're talking about a case where you say, like, this is going to be the bathroom. And this over here is, you know, then also. And all you've said is also, right? Does that also, can that, can that kind of understanding that you're still talking about a bathroom apply to be an official statement about that second location, let's say. Meaning we know that it's going to be a bathroom. What if someone says, and this, but not this also, right? So then again, with the very specifics of the language, are, is, it, is, it, is there enough there to make it clear that this is going to be a bathroom to the extent that it would have that halachic standing. Or does he have to say explicitly, you know, and this also will be a bathroom. Or maybe what we're saying is, you know, and this, and maybe it's not a statement then, maybe it's even a, a question or, or a statement like, and this is just going to be like a general use, specifically because by not saying that will be a bathroom. Um, by by not saying it explicitly, it's as if saying, no, no, it's just for general use. It's not going to have that specific identity. So the Gemara answers here, or, you know, makes an attempt. Can we say that then Ravina sees it as obvious that there is such a thing as designating a bathroom as a bathroom? Meaning, the moment you start talking about all the parameters or whatever of the specific language to designate something as a bathroom, the implication is that that's what you're doing. You're designating something as a bathroom. So then the question is, you know, when we when we say this, when we're going to say um, that something is a bathroom, what is the implication of that for Ravina, right? What is his purpose here? What about a bathhouse, right? These nowadays we put it all into our shower, right? Meaning into a, a bathroom has a toilet and it has a shower or a bathtub or whatever. But these were different functionary places back in the ancient world. Zimun mo'il o'ein zimun mo'il. 
So then the question is, you know, once you say that this is a bathhouse as compared to a, a bathroom, a toilet, right? Is the, does that designation or, or not, right? This is exactly the question. And so Ravina raises this, like, you know, as the dilemma. And in the end, we don't really have an answer. Ravina, does that designation have a halachic function to make that place what we've just said it would be? So at the end, so like you, you say that designating it as such as thus and such a place as a bathroom, as a as a bathhouse, whatever, you say it's effective. Well, that is there a difference between saying Zimun? We're we're planning that this is going to be that place. We're going to give it that identity versus this yad that we've been talking about up until now that it is um a that we're specifying it for the purpose of um, this halachic standing. I will say that so far, I'm not sure that I have a a, a thorough grasp, let's say, of the difference between um, the zimun versus the yad. I think that will become clearer as we go on. Unless you're Dana, maybe you already have a good grasp. No, I, I think this is something that we're going to sort of have to pay a little bit more attention to. Um but, you know, I think this whole thing with Rabbi Akiva, um, you know, again, this is like it's real subtlety of language. Like it's, it's I, when I'm reading these passages, I, I'm finding myself having to read them multiple times because I'm just sort of like not getting the language in the Hebrew itself. Right. Yes, I'm with you on that. Let's do, let, let me just quickly do this passage about Rabbi Akiva. Right? It's just basically right. Somebody who says, I am, I am, let's say, ostracized. I am apart from you, right? So what happens is that Abai says that Rabbi Akiva, who, and he's clearly talking about a, a bigger discussion that happens elsewhere that everybody knows about, except for maybe we don't, right? But if you were like, if we already knew all of Shas, we would know exactly what this is talking about. That Rabbi Akiva has a position that when you're talking about mal, that somebody is the person who violates an oath that is in this kind of phrasing, right? Menudani lacha. Rabbi Akiva says that that person would not get malkot for the violation of the oath. So then the Gemara wants to know, you know, so let it say Rabbi Akiva machmir. So then let it teach that Rabbi Akiva is stringent as opposed to saying, um, as opposed to say, just this case of Menudani Lacha, we don't know yet that it's a matter of Rabbi Akiva being stringent as opposed to um, stringent for the need of flogging, I should say, right? Meaning that he's going to be lenient with regard to the words themselves. Um, so therefore, right, he's going to concede that y- y- the person who violates the, the oath is not going to get flogged. And um, as I said, this is, again, this is the kind of thing that it's really like three little lines here. And it's really talking about, you know, the bigger topic of what what the punishment is or when does the punishment kick in or not kick in for the case of uh, breaking the oath. I want to just say that when I first read this passage, um, and this is why I'm the one talking about it and not your Dana, I, I kind of had this like my heart sunk a little bit because anytime we talk about you know, and he, it's really just a, a halachic punishment, right? That's the basic shot here. But we, that Rabbi Akiva's name, because we know how Rabbi Akiva died, right? He he was flogged, right, with iron combs. They 
it's a very gruesome death. Um, I, my my heart sinks to think like he's talking about it like a halachic, a halachic puzzle, right? A halachic psak that we need to know the answer to, and you know, without having that sense of his future, which is now so much in our past, and he couldn't have known what was coming. And thank God for that. I, it just kind of like took me took me aback by just for a minute. You know, I, 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 I totally hear what you're saying about that. I'm going to move on now to uh, something on Amud Bet. And there's this very, you know, kind of bizarre tangent that they take about this issue of excommunication. And it's based on this language that we just spoke about, about minudeh, which is a language of detachment. That's how they translate it into English. And it's a question of, you know, the rabbis hold, is that really saying you're excommunicating somebody versus taking a neder from somebody that you will not have um, any benefit? And so then the Gemara gets into some laws, certain halachot, about just excommunication um, in general. So um, so one of the things it says here is, I'm a Rabbi Eli, I'm a Rabbi, Rabbi Eli said in the name of Rabbi, if you excommunicate a person in their presence, you can't annul it, that excommunication, unless they're present also. If you excommunicate him not in his presence, they annul, they can annul it whether it's in his presence or not in his presence. And then they talk about an actual, like, what would actually call for excommunication? When would you do this to a person? Rav Hanin says the name of Rav. So somebody who mentions God in his fellow's mouth. Now, this is an example where the Gemara doesn't use the exact language. Really, it's that you took God's name in vain, but it uses euphemistic language because it's such a terrible thing that somebody would do. They almost don't want to state it outright what it is, what the, you know, what the terrible thing is that actually took place. It's required to excommunicate him. So this is when somebody did this intentionally, um, and it comes from a Pasuk in Devarim, chapter 10, verse 20, Hashem, your God, you should feel fear. And from there they learn that you're not allowed to take God's name um, in, uh, in vain. And some of the most explained this could also do if you hear somebody swear falsely or utter a blessing in vain, because all these things would, would be a violation of this particular Pasuk. So if you hear this... Um, you have to excommunicate. And if you don't excommunicate the person who committed the sin, then you, that person who heard it, this person should also be in a state of excommunication. Now, they're not saying that he should be excommunicated by somebody, but it's basically saying you're deserving of excommunication because you didn't excommunicate that person. And then the Gemara explains why that is. Anywhere we have a mention of God's, you know, name in vain, right? Sham Aniyut Mitsuya. Poverty is prevalent, okay? Um, why? Shanet Ba'aniyu Kamita. And poverty is like death. Shanet Ma'arki Metu Kol Anashim. So here they're quoting Pasuk from Shemot chapter 4, verse 19, where Hashem says to Moshe, right, who had left Mitzrayim because there was a threat to his life, and he's telling him that now was a good time for him to return, Right. And it says for all the men basically who were seeking to kill him, they have died. So in other words, at, had those men actually been alive, 
right? It it has to mean that uh, that they became uh, that they would have be- become um, impoverished. And again, this has to do with the pasuk that's in Zechariah. We won't go through this whole thing here, right? Vitania, and it's learned in a brisa. Wherever the sages set their eyes with, you know, like like they condemn something, omita o uni. There's either death or there's poverty. So we see that poverty and death are equated um, to each other. Um, and so, you know, so it's interesting that the, the big sin that we're talking about that involves excommunication has to do with somebody who basically isn't respectful, um, you know, about God and, 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 and literally just takes God's name or says God's name in a way that was not appropriate and was disrespectful. Um, and then finally, you know, so then the Gemara basically uh, gives a story to this with, with Rabbi Abba, that he was once inside this, I'll say outside, he was in front of Rav Huna, who heard a woman do this, and he excommunicated her, but then he immediately, he annulled the excommunication. And we say that we learned three things from this, that if you hear God's name uh, in vain, you're supposed to excommunicate that. Also, that if you excommunicate somebody in their presence, you annul it in their presence. And finally, there doesn't need to be an interval of time between the excommunication and when you annul it. And that's also very interesting because it seems that it's sort of like you have to excommunicate the person, right? But you don't have to do it for a very long time because it seems like maybe this is more a way to deter the person from doing this again. And then finally, it concludes with uh, uh, this halacha of Rav Gidel, which says, I'm a Rav Gidel, I'm a Rav, Tamil chacham latzmo, mifir latzmo. A Torah scholar is allowed to excommunicate himself and then revoke it itself. And they explain uh, exactly why. And then they give this example, Marzutra Hasida, who whenever he would hear a student or whenever there was a situation where a student deserved excommunication, he would excommunicate himself because it was a way of sort of showing that he is the head of the academy. It was a way of sort of as showing that he is the head of the He's like responsible for that. And so he sort of excommunicates himself as well as excommunicating the student himself. So ex- this type of excommunication, when God is disrespected, uh, we haven't really seen a lot about. Uh, but it's interesting the way that, again, it's a language-based sin. And so it makes sense that it appears in Masech and Nidarim while we're having a very serious discussion about the nuances of language. These are sort of language-based prohibitions, language-based halakha. I think it makes perfect sense that it would be here. I don't know about here on this day, right, on this particular daf, but I think that the fact that we have, you know, the this kind of cursing kind of language in the Durham, I want to say, like, where else would it be? I'm sure we could find other places as well, but it makes sense to me. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's going with, it, it flows well here. Well, that's our daf discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodgin website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.